Welcome back to Repod, the University of Salford's research podcast. And today we're talking to Professor Will Swan, who has been working with the university's Energy House community for over 10 years. And we're on the brink of launching Energy House 2.0. It's incredibly exciting, not least because COP26 is just around the corner. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andy. You're right. Yeah, good to see you here. And it's fantastic to start this conversation by talking about your journey. And uh, I've seen so much about Energy House at the University of Salford over the last eight years of being there. So tell us about where it began with you. Um, it's a funny, it's not a straight route, as I think it is with quite a lot of people in research. So I, I did my undergraduate at Cambridge and in um, Chartered Surveying. And then I went to work in IT for a couple of years because um, I just sort of picked up those skills uh, going on. And really, I wasn't enjoying it as I should do. So um, I saw the opportunity for a PhD based around the internet um, at the University of Salford in the School of Built Environment. And really, um, that kind of got me into doing what I'm doing now in a very sort of long route. So that was 1996. (laughs) So we can, you know, um, we can sort of cast them up where it minds back to the days of brick pop, etc. Um, so for me, uh, when I first started my PhD, it was very technical. But actually, when I was doing my PhD, I realised actually the problem was around people. Um, and, and that really wasn't being covered. So I moved into an area known as knowledge management. But quite quickly, because I had a range of different skills, I ended up as a research assistant and then a research fellow. So my first research assistant post was um, related to building information modeling and and computing essentially and then my second one which was around trust in construction related to management and then um, I worked for an organization owned by the university called the Centre for Construction Innovation and what what I moved into then I I started dealing with things like performance measurement, um, project management Um, but what I identified was the issue of sustainability for construction was huge and uh, I sort of developed that area and in, in the end wrote the Northwest Sustainable Construction Policy for the Regional Development Agency at the time. And then I, I kind of fancied moving back into academia. So I joined an EPSRC centre that was based in the School of Built Environment and ended up managing that. And then somebody left. And as is often the case with these things, um, they had the housing portfolio. And somebody just dumped it on my desk and said, do something with that. And that was around 2008. And so I had a blank piece of paper. What do I do with housing? There's two issues, really, for me with housing. The sustainability of housing and the supply of housing. And I thought, well, I can't do both. So I chose the sustainability of housing and really started digging in. Um, and really, I was on my own. And I did a roundabout tour of the university. I spoke to health school, physics. Um, engineering and in the end there was kind of a small coterie of people um, and we put together the original Salford Energy House project so it was really physical environment that led that and that really was a first that was absolutely a first um, and that kind of gave us the critical mass and slowly bit by bit over kind of 10 years 
Um, we, we've grown into, you know, we're 17 people now, so we're a pretty big, big outfit with four labs. Um, and really how, I suppose, the critical points of growth, one was really when Richard joined, Richard Fitton, who I'm guessing you'll speak to eventually, um, which kind of, you know, he blocked off a lot of skills that, that we really didn't have in the team at the time. And, and really, you know, from there, we really grew the team. Um, and, I, and I suppose the move into digital was a big one for us because actually it gave us this whole wraparound thing. And I suppose really what has been consistent through my career really is about being out of facing, working with industry, um, working with local authorities, housing associations. Because I think really research for me is a contact sport, you know, so the, the more people you speak to, the more people you engage with, the more you learn, the more you see different angles of what you're doing. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, really, maybe that 15 year journey through sustainability is really the, the, the thing that I actually really engaged with, having sort of dotted around a few disciplines and a few ways of doing things. But I think those those lessons you learn, particularly with industry, sort of you carry through and they, they help everything you do. You know, it's like when you write your PhD, nothing is wasted, nothing at all. So, you know, those are the things that you learn. And we hear so much about sustainability at the moment. Of course, COP26 is just around the corner. But going back to where you began, did you have a sense that sustainability was sort of the key issue we need to think about? What was sort of in your mind at that at those early years for you? So I think it was very much an emergent, um, emergent question for the construction industry. And I think, that, you know, the head of environment for um, Greater Manchester now is a guy called Mark Averton. And he was head of low carbon in 2004 for Northwest Development Agency and ploughing a very lonely furrow indeed. Um, so, you know, we were very much, you just saw it was obvious that the problems were going to emerge and, you know, we're 15 years down the line and, and, and I think it's more broadly accepted. But then it, it was kind of just sitting there like an elephant in the room, right, waiting to be, um, you know, the nettle to be grasped a little bit. Um, and so that, to me, became a very interesting problem. And, you know, more interesting than computers, more interesting than management. It's like, it's the world. You know, so that's a, that's a decent question to be throwing yourself at. Yeah, and certainly focusing on, on housing is, is such a big part of that equation. And uh, you mentioned that this was sort of dumped on your desk as a, as a portfolio to, to work on. But I guess I, I wonder how is it you thought that was the priority, that we need to get into houses, figure them out, make them more sustainable? Is that, is that a key thing that you thought this is, this is part I think of the problems? Yeah, I think sometimes, you, you know, I think in research you have opportunities mm. and there are kind of trigger points. Mm. And that really was a line manager saying, please do something with housing. But actually, it's like, you know, you get that resource to really think about the problem in, in probably some, in a way that I've never really had that space before. Mm. And so for me, why housing is probably, you know, you can't do everything. So we, we do focus on, you know, smaller buildings. Um, but for me, what makes housing interesting is the lived experience as well. So, you know, we do work with people like Graham Sheriff at the Sustainable Housing and Urban Studies Unit. So it's not just a, you know, let's stick an air source heat pump in and cover everything in insulation. It's what is the lived experience of that? Mm. What does that mean for policy? How do people use those changes to their home? What difference does it make to people with chronic illness? So it's a, it's a more real and interesting problem. So it's how sustainability impacts people's lives in the day-to-day 
Um, and I think that to me, you know, when I started doing my own field work, um, when we first started, you know, I was knocking on doors and asking people about fuel poverty. Mm-hmm. And you see people living in fuel poverty. That's a real problem. Um, and, and, you know, just moving towards zero carbon can address that problem at the same time. And so that, to me, makes a, a very real, um, worthwhile, impactful way to spend your working life. Mm. And we've seen a lot in the news about fuel poverty and, of course, the fuel sort of crisis that we see at the moment. How optimistic are you that we are on track to make things better? Do you think we're going quickly enough? What are sort of the key things that you would, would want policy to be doing to, to make well, the change? Well, what do I want policy to do is just yeah. do something and then <laughs> for five or ten years. Um, you know, I've worked in the policy environment because we work very closely with the Great Manchester Combined Authority. We mm. work closely Bays, and we talk to um, what they're called DLUC now, but you know, communities and housing communities, local government. Um, so, to me, it's about having a clear policy that actually has to cut across parties, it can't live through one parliament. It's a 10 20 year problem. Um, I think the problem that we've had a lot with policy making in the energy space, and particularly in the energy and building space, is it's been very bitty, you know, it's been the Green Deal and the Green Homes Grant and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that and that clashes with that. And and actually the, the problem is a, a greater magnitude than that. Mm. I think the other thing that we need to think about is it's not all grant funding. You're not going to solve that problem. We need to make markets and, and that requires different kinds of structural investments to make sure that people can get, you know, people can buy a retrofit. I, I, well, I know because I work in the field, but I think that, you know, the person in the street does not know how to improve their homes that easily and where to get that advice. And I don't, you know, policymakers need to think about that. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about Energy House. I think, is it 10 years this year that it's open? That the one yeah. version? It's like our Starship Enterprise. <laughs> it's like we that the condensers cannot take it anymore. Um, so uh, Energy House won. Um, was it Salford Energy House? We call it Energy House. Want to differentiate it? Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically a Victorian end terrace. It's built to scale, sixty-three square meters, two up, two down, with half a house to replicate the neighbouring property. It's in an environmental chamber, and so we can take it down to sort of minus twelve, thirteen, up to thirty. Um, and you know, rain, wind, snow, um, sun. Um, so, and over the years, we sort of kind of adapted it, and. I think when we, you know, so it, I was the person who did the work to decide what to build in there. Really, although it was the best building to build in there, it was probably the only building you could build in there because it was not a purpose-built chamber. Mm-hmm. And I think it was one of those things that it was a high-risk venture because we didn't really know what it was when we started doing it. The idea was to deal with retrofit. And I don't think we kind of understood just how powerful it would be. So if you want to test something in the field to understand its energy efficiency, you'd probably be staring down the barrel of two years, maybe two or three hundred thousand pounds. That's the only way to do it in a way that policymakers or, or regulators would recognise. What we can do is do a before and after repeatable experiment at the whole system level with lots of data, more data than you never get in the field. And then we can do before and after. And and that is an incredibly powerful story to tell a regulator or a policymaker. So, you know, we've got um, a £600,000 project with Bayes at the moment. It's been in there about eight months now. 
whereby we're just trying to understand retrofit and different types of heating systems that people are going to experience. And, and it is, it's an incredibly powerful tool. It really, we, we, we did one really big project with a company called Sangaban, the world's biggest manufacturing construction project. Mm. And I would say from there, 2013, um, we really never not had that building in use out, unless it's out of choice for maintenance or training or whatever. It has mm. always been in use if you want to get into it. Now, it's probably getting on for the middle of next year. <laughs> and that's... And, we, and we've had it over a year at times and just had to close the doors to the new business. And that's, that is obviously then a really powerful research tool. And so in terms of the interior environment of the house, is it something then for each project you install new systems and test them out? Is it sort of constantly being redesigned inside or how does it work? Um, so what we have, we have it at a base state. So we imagine what it would be like, you know, in 2010 when we built it so a lot of people retain their single glazed windows they mm -hmm. had a bit of um, loft insulation they'll have a gas combi boiler and that's kind of quite common usually the badly fitting front and back door which is what we ended up with although you know whether we spec mm -hmm. that or not is another question and so that base state is really reflective of actually lots of homes that are out there so what do we do to the do to the property is everything and anything. So at the moment, it has an air source heat pump instead of gas boiler. It has different types of emitters, so radiators. Um, it's covered in insulation, um, covered in brick slips. So, you know, we can do anything from that whole house retrofit that we're currently doing now to here's a widget that goes on your boiler, does it work? You know, mm. so they can be big interventions or tiny interventions, they can be massive companies. Or they can be like SME innovators, which we were always really interested in. And you mentioned earlier that you've one program of work has been to integrate digital into the environment. Tell us a bit more about that. I mean, you have widgets and things. What sorts of integrations are happening in this area, and what have you been able to do with Energy House so far? So, in terms of digital, um, we had this sort of fantasy where the smart meters came out. We do because we do do field trials. So, you know, it's not mm -hmm. the, Energy House, not the only way of. Of understanding uh, what happens in building. So we, we thought, oh, smart meters, we could get the data from smart meters and we wouldn't have to install all this, that, and the other. And it was a nightmare. This was like 2015. And really, I would probably put this at Richard and certainly Yanis's feet that over the past five years, we've been so tenacious with the energy companies, the smart meter manufacturers, the smart homes manufacturers to try and understand how digital is integrating into our homes in the future. Mm. Um, and I think it's a big pressure um, because actually, you know, people want this stuff. People want smart homes, people want smart thermostats. And what we're trying to do is establish is do these things actually work? Do they bring benefit at a technical level? Never mind at the, at the occupant level. So um, we have the smart meters lab. So I'm in Jewel House where James Prescott Jewel conducted some of his experiments. And in the in the ground floor of dual houses are smart meters lab, and that is really about you know heating systems now have APIs you know they have programming interfaces so you can pull data off them. So we're pulling data all the time and all the comms from you know using weather data to understand actually how much heating we're going to need the next day. Those kinds of integrations of databases and data flows. And, and decision making and control, I think, are really, really interesting for the future mm. of energy. Because, you know, house, when we first started, 
was probably, you know, just a consumption node at the mm. end of the energy system. And now it consumes, it generates, it stores, and, and eventually will trade, will sell network services to people like Electricity Northwest. It's a really, you know, a really interesting and complicated space. And, and you know, and electric vehicles are part of that story as well. So, you know, over the last, certainly the last five or six years, that kind of digital angle to what we do has given us this kind of wraparound capability, which is why big house builders are coming to us. It's fascinating to hear all of those different examples. And I wonder whether you sort of come out of a decade of, of researching with Energy House and feel that there is, are there sort of single things that households c- could be doing or should be enabled to do that are really big priorities for you? What what can we do to make our, our lives more sustainable? I'll, I'll hark back to Richard Fitton's recent appearance on breakfast television and his <laughs> soon, to, soon to be appearance on BB. I, I mean, this is, this is definitely like Rick, you know, Richard's from a building surveying background. So these, these energy efficiency things are, are, are really, really, um, they're useful for people, particularly in the face of uh, rising gas prices. So I think yeah. there, are, there, there are things, it depends how much money you've got in your pocket. Mm. And that really does make a big difference. So when we think about, you know, big insulation projects, external wall insulation. Yeah, they make a big difference, but they're expensive. So, you know, we'll talk about things like a good set of heating controls and making sure that you're only heating the rooms you're in and obviously Mm -hmm. keeping those other rooms that are slightly cooler. Things like, you know, drawing your curtains. Um, So all these, you know, draft proofing, all these small things, it's quite often it's an accretion of lots of small things. I think the one thing that Richard did flag was actually, you know, understanding how you're consuming data as well and mm-hmm. so the smart meters and in-home displays you know that probably a lot of people just put put away are probably going to start coming out of the drawer and people going oh turn that off and <laughs> that's the big thing about energy efficiency is the stuff that you don't use that you don't need don't use it yeah and you're now moving into a very exciting phase with energy house 2.0 which is I mean, I've seen the videos, seen the interior design, it looks incredible. So tell us a bit about Energy House 2.0. Where are we up to with its design and construction and uh, yeah, how's it going? No, it's, uh, that, that's a project six years in the making. So we had a meeting late in 2015 where we complained about all the things that were wrong with Energy House 1 and drew what we would like for Energy House 2. Um, and actually, I dug out an old business plan where it would be constructed by 2019 and we would start using it. <laughs> so I'm just goes to tell you when, you, when you need a lot of money for something, everything moves a bit slower. So where we are now is uh, we, we'll be getting the keys in about December. So a lot of the main construction is done. Um, the, uh, the systems to control the environment are being installed and partially commissioned now. Um, and then we will start our own personal commissioning tests sort of late December, January. Um, and then after that point, when we're happy with that, we ran a competition and we've got four consortia who I can't name because there's a, they're, they're, you know, big companies who are going to build houses inside there. So they're bringing their teams that, you know, and, and, and funding the builds themselves. And so we will have four quite different um, research propositions with big companies. Um, that will probably be constructed May, June, and then we will probably have a, a large full launch. But what we're hoping to do is during commissioning and, and, and when it's safe, we'll just have a few open days so people can come and have a, have a look around. Because I think, you know, it is a big beast. It's, it's the biggest single, probably, research grant that's, that's come into the university. 
Um, and, and the eyes are, you know, the eyes of industry are on us. It's, it's, um, and I think the thing is, is, you know, when we, when we wrote it into the strategy for the city, that, which is our, you know, we've we got money. So lots of people who've worked around it, uh, on the funding have never seen it. And actually, you know, when they see it, they go, oh, actually, I didn't realize it was as big as this <laughs> because it is, it's enormous. It's like a big cubic death star. Well, I noticed you said it's uh, houses, plural, being constructed inside it. So it's... Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, really, the, the, the reason we did it the way we did it is because Energy House One is a Victorian house. It, it covers 20% of the UK population. There are certain things, we, if we can't undo it, we can't do it to it, because otherwise we, we would change the nature of the asset. So the idea for Energy House Two is it's just two greenfield sites, and you can build mm. two houses in there, drive cars in and out, which people who've been to Energy House One will see, you can't get very much down the corridors into there. So it's everything is a bit of a trauma. There you can get digger in, you know, you can get a lorry in, you can get a crane in. And that really <laughs> completely changes what we're doing. It changes the game, the people we engage with, the fact we can get down to minus 20 up to plus 40, it makes us international. And that was really the plan for it was, was to sort of take us from being you know, nationally well recognized with some international contact context to an international research center. And that's, you know, that's the scope of the ambition for Energy House too, really. And I know it's had, uh, it receives support from the European Regional Development Fund. The principal stakeholders, are they obviously the university, the ERDF? Is there any other organization that's sort of involved at this sort of ground, ground, ground zero yeah. level? Yeah, so the it, it also had a, a hefty grant, which is now the the office for students. Mm. I think one of the things as well, certainly when we come out of the ERDF grant period, is actually that is a massive opportunity because things are going to be built, knocked down, tested, and people will get to see, you know, how things are put together. It's actually because we have a project called um, the Z House, which is um, just nearing completion, and we've had a student uh, placement on there, and she said. To be honest, I've learned so much because you just really understand how things go together. It's like taking what you learn in the classroom and having it put against the real context, you know. So it, that, I think, is a real opportunity for teaching and learning in the university. But also the fact that big businesses and big employers are coming through the door all the time. Yeah, that's incredible to hear. And I think um, we're also sort of launching a Friends of Energy House 2.0 campaign where people can get involved with supporting the, the build of it and the research that's taking place. Tell us a bit more about that program, because I know there are different ways in which people can support and invest. So what we wanted to do is rather, I think, we, you know, we're quite socially conscious and, you know, we try and do lots of outreach. We try and get, and get into schools. Um, you know, the STEM ambassadors with the Science Museum. So the idea of Energy House, Friends of Energy House 2, was really about pulling our um, networks together and saying, look, we, we want to do something different and good around um, the project that isn't part of the project. So we decided to put together a kind of an impact fund that would help us do things like schools outreach, engagement with charities, and also maybe fund some studentships. And we're particularly interested in, in women into STEM because it's something you know that, that we see as a problem for us as a unit. So we wanted to try and make some funded studentships. So, you know, the, the female physics students, female computer science students will get an opportunity to work, work with us. Um, 
and I, I mean, it's, you know, it's a very exciting space to work. So I just didn't want it to just be an endless stream of boys. <laughs> to be honest, I don't think it's healthy. But yeah, so it's it's exciting. I think that's and and we've started, you know, reaching out to our partners, and I think it's something that you know they're keen to get involved in. And I think if you know if we can get it some critical mass, we can actually make a bit more of an impact um, outside of the research and the teaching into the community just that little bit more strongly so yeah it's, it's exciting I'm, I'm looking forward to it being sort of more formally launched and i think it's such a fantastic thing to do to involve the community to make them feel part of it and obviously a lot of it is connected to what many people describe as the climate emergency in which we're situated presently and i think that that sense of urgency of creating a community around the house is just just wonderful and i suppose it's also exciting to think about the different ways in which different sectors can support it so do people donate a certain amount of money for a specific program or how is it that it's they sort of get involved through their donation at the moment, um, and certainly, you know, what we're in the middle of is a soft launch. So we're approaching yeah. people who've, who've, who've basically looked for a way to commit and engage. And, and we've got, you know, we've got a lot of friends in a lot of decent sized big companies. And a lot of big companies engage with this corporate social responsibility agenda. They want to engage with the climate agenda. So at the moment, um, there's a, a, a sort of lump of money that they donate that goes into a central fund We'll be looking to put a board in to disperse that for, for projects really against those three headings. So studentships, um, schools and engagement and impact, because that's something quite close to my heart and um, the uh, sort of working with charity. So, you know, looking at environmental impact projects and, and those kinds of things, because, you know, I, th I think it's just a huge opportunity for the university to kind of look the outside of itself a little bit more and, and for us to leave those business opportunities not necessarily just for ourselves but for the, the community around us in Salford and Greater Manchester. Definitely for those that are watching or listening if you contact Sophie Hall at the University of Salford then you can find out more about this and I think I was at a meeting yesterday that was part of the Greater Manchester AI Foundry which is also another Salford University co-design project and uh, speaking there was Andy Burnham and talking about Greater Manchester. And I think there's a real commitment across the region to really invest into a greener future. And I, I guess I wonder just to sort of take you back to the start of our conversation where you where you began with your research way back when thinking about sustainability. How do you see things in, in Greater Manchester particularly? in terms of leadership, in terms of activity, investment? Are you feeling sort of optimistic about where we're going? Are you think are you thinking there are things we should be doing differently? So one of the first things we did when we set up um, as a, a sort of energy and buildings group was engage with, it was AGMA at the time. So, you know, my role, I'm, I'm chair of the um, Low Carbon Buildings Challenge Group at Andy Burnham's five-year environment plan. I sit on the retrofit task force. So... You know, I, I see there is political commitment and, you know, they, they, and it's not just us, you know, the, the other universities as well. That we're all in that place to try and drive change, you know, Tyndall Centre particularly, sort of right in the middle of that conversation. And that's why we've engaged with things like the Energy Innovation Agency to, to sort of try and innovate our way out of a, a climate emergency. So those, you know, I'm passionate about place, absolutely mm. passionate about the way the university fits into Manchester. And so, I, you know, I don't like a, a kind of finger-wagging academia. You've got to get <laughs> your hands dirty rather than tell everyone they're doing it wrong. 
And so, you know, we've really committed to that. And I do see Andy Burnham has actually made some really, you know, it's the um, uh, Green Summit on Monday, and we'll be speaking there about Energy House too. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that leadership is there. I think at a national level, there's some, you know, I think there's, there's, there's commitment, but actually how that turns into real policy instruments for us, that's the, that's the, the nub and crux of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, everybody working in this space is doing their, their level best, particularly in GM. And I think GM does lead in this space as well. I think mm. when you speak to sort of civil servants at a national level, I think it's accepted that GM kind of, you know, blazes a trail. Mm. Yeah, it's a really exciting place to work and really exciting to see Energy House 2.0. In, phys in its physical form on campus, which is just really exciting. I think one of the things I was saying to you earlier, that if, when you go around campus now, if you've not been there for a long time, there's so much construction that's taken place. We've got the new science, engineering and environment building. We've got Energy House 2.0. We've got so much going on. And just to, one of the things I always encourage my undergraduates, first year undergraduates to do is to walk around the university and discover some of these places because they're such surprises and you can easily go your entire degree without seeing everything. So, uh, so it's wonderful to hear about the stories of Energy House over this decade and really exciting to think about where we're going in the future. So uh, thank you, Will, so much for joining me today to explain your story and to give, it a, give us a sense of what is yet to come. So great to see you. Thanks, Andy. Cheers. Take care and have a good rest of your day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, that was Professor Will Swan, one of the two people that's leading the research work around Energy House 2.0, an extraordinary new facility that's being constructed as we speak at the University of Salford Peel campus. If you take a wander down there, you'll be just absolutely blown away by what's going on. The amount of construction we have is extraordinary. And if you would like to consider becoming a friend of Energy House 2.0, joining its investment community, then do reach out to Sophie Ball, who you'll find on the Energy House 2.0 website, which I'm sure you can find by Googling. Have a great rest of your day and speak to you again soon.